0: Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Here ends the reading of the word. Let
1: us pray. Father God, we all have our weak areas. Our areas where we stubbornly refuse to grow. Where we refuse to Embrace the armor of God, forsaking it, and going astray. Help cut us with the power of your word this morning so that we might better apprehend the truth of your word, the truth of your gospel, the truth of who you are. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Finally, finally. Finally, we've reached the end of Ephesians, and while finally is the first word in our passage today, do you know when we started this sermon series? Back in November. So finally, eight months later, we have uh, reached the end of it. Six chapters in eight months. And honestly, I think we rushed it. I really do. I think we rushed it quite a bit because, uh, as we said, as we began this study, this letter, there is actually evidence that this letter was the first catechism of the New Testament church, that this was their functional Heidelberg, that this was not just only to be found addressed to the Ephesians, but other communities, actually, those other communities that we're going to study in our next study in the book of Revelation, uh, some of those communities have this book also addressed to them. This is a basics of the faith kind of document. A Heidelberg-like document. And in that, it provides, even though we've covered it in eight months, a lifetime of challenges. This is one of those doc- letters that Christians we should go back to and back to and back to and back to. As I said at the beginning of this series there is no book in the Bible I was made to read more in seminary than this book. This is John Calvin's actually favorite book. This Ephesians. It's an amazing book. And as we begin the these verses let us begin with why is Paul saying finally today? Is it because he's exasperated and tired of writing? No, the guy is in prison. This is hardly his longest letter. He's got plenty of time to write. But actually, he's been building up like a, an orchestra, like a director of uh, music, a great crescendo. A passionate conclusion. Paul's been telling us in many times, in many ways, throughout this letter, how the faithful of God, are first precious to God, that we are His family and He takes care of us and He watches over us while we live in a world often hostile and sometimes wicked. And yet, God has brought us to the ecclesia, to church communities, to being a collective, to not just being a group of a bunch of individual yous as we discussed last week, but becoming y'alls, where we all are built up together. Ephesians in one sense has told us we are united under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all those who believe and have received the grace of God. And as we also covered last week, as a people of God, we are in a battle. There is a war going on between the forces of evil and the forces of good, as that painting from Dolly last week that we looked at um, helped illustrate. Our passage implies the inevitability of us needing to be ready for attacks from evil forces in our lifetime. How's that for biblical encouragement this morning? The Bible wants us to appreciate in the fact... The fact that in this life, attacks will come. Here we are today, a a gathering of a rural church off the main road in a historic place with great charm. Undeniably, there is this unique and beautiful simplicity to the place that we here gather. We sit on a piece of land. You in the pews are sitting upon the very foundation that a church 300 years ago would have also sung a mighty fortress is our God, probably in German, for comfort and strength in the attacks that come in this life. And we follow in their footsteps, still in ecclesia, still a community centered around the Christ and the cross and the gospel of grace and the third verse of that song we sing today say to us, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through, the, through us. This prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. As true for us, As for those who 300 years earlier were upon this foundation of the Ecclesia. And what do we need to do to be ready in this battle? Paul makes it very clear in the first four verses, because he says it four times. Though the English translates it slightly differently one time. We are to stand. To withstand and to stand. To stand. To stand against evil. To stand firm once more. To stand upon the reality of what Christ's work means for us. That he is more than a conqueror for us. He is the hero of history. But we are also to stand when wicked government authorities try to lead us astray. When perverse spiritual powers, as we looked at last week, um, often want to sidetrack us. And Satan himself, he's going to try to get us to sit down. And to really bow down to the wicked values and philosophies of our age. And God wants us to have the courage in such moments to stand up. Stand, stand, stand. We must stand up. You know, it's been said by many pastors before, but one of the most successful ways the devil has made inroads into this world is by convincing us he doesn't exist. There's this interesting reality, especially of pastors who have served in places like, um, for instance, in the Cold War and in the Soviet Union, where they'll talk about the fact that as it got worse and worse, the persecution of the church by the governmental authorities of their lifetime, there actually was this unique beauty to it all. Because the church became closer and closer together. You could, you could more easily spot that which was good and that which was evil. And, and you can actually read pastors who have served in places where they've been put in prisons, where they have been um, made to suffer, even some unto death, and they'll write about how the real difficult time was once they were liberated, and once the enemy wasn't so obvious to 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 see. That's when it really affected their communities, as they basically became. Numb to the fact that the spiritual warfare that Paul is talking about here is not a maybe you will incur these spiritual forces in your lifetime. It is a be ready because you will kind of reality. It was easy to spot an oppression. Sometimes in quote unquote liberty it can be harder to identify. I love that quote at the front of your bulletin. It's not by a theologian. It's simply by a British soldier who was at Dunkirk. And as he continued to, to see a retreat, a retreat where the Germans were driving the last remnant of British and French soldiers into the ocean, he's asked, what did it feel like? What was it like? What was the experience all like? And and he basically says that the more bleak it all got, the more and more he realized that everybody upon that beachhead was a part of his family. A large part of the book of Ephesians has been the idea that we are a unique ecclesia, a church family. I remember reading, I, I forget where, couple of years ago about an Iranian couple that had the good fortune to come to America. They were Christians. They were being persecuted in Iran. And they came to America. And they spent a couple of years here. And then they went back to Iran. Because they said there was a unique kind of evil in the American church. An evil that was... Almost like a sleepwalking. And so they went back to Iran because the church in Iran knew what it was and what it was not. And yet, what did Paul tell us in chapter 5? Didn't he tell us? Awake, O sleeper. Arise. And yet, much of what we do... Is we fool ourselves that there is not a spiritual battle going on, and we just kind of live in that ignorance. The battle is here, it's not coming, it is here, and it's always been here. 300 years ago, upon this foundation, and still today. Satan has not rested from his relentless assault on the things that God calls good. Satan has not lost his love to grow weeds in God's beautiful vineyards and gardens. How subtle sin can be. Just think of that first encounter with the first Adam and Eve and his bride. How it so easily got off track by two people who were good inherently in themselves. A unique kind of goodness we've never known. They had never sinned before. And yet it just took three questions. Did God really say? Did God really mean? You know You know what? You can be God. You don't need to listen to Him. You can be your own God. And then even with the second Adam, the conquering Adam, the victorious Adam, who is Jesus Christ our Lord, when we even see that moment of Jesus in the wilderness against Satan... How does Satan get, try to get Jesus off track? He tries to get him off track. Why? By misquoting the scriptures. By twisting them. By taking them out of context. By making it something that doesn't really say. And yet Jesus, of course, was armed with the sword, with the word of God. And he was able to strike his enemy down in that wilderness. This is why when Paul is warning the Galatians in chapter 1 of that book not to embrace a false works-based gospel, he doesn't say things like, yeah, just look for the big horned creature painted in red with the ugly voice. He's going to try to convince you of something else. No, rather, he's warning that there is this persistent evil that will try to fool us by showing us things that at first look beautiful and good. Either from angelic-looking hosts or even... If people try to claim apostolic authority, it doesn't matter, Paul says at the beginning of Galatians. It matters what their message is. It matters if it's based on truth. It matters if it's based on Christ. If It matters if it's saturated in the gospel. Things look good that are rotten to the core. That's the reality from the very beginning of scripture. It has not changed. The battle lines have not changed. Seemingly good things can be rotten to their core. We're in a war, and so we're called to be in a warlike footing. And yet the American Church collectively seems woefully unprepared for the moment we find ourselves in. Why? Because we stopped appreciating that we are in an active battle, that will try and distort love, we'll try to change the lines of unity, to change God's word, any chance it gets. By uh, individuals who appear on the outside to be innocent as lambs, and yet inside they are ravenous wolves. And so we are in a battlefield in this life, and a soldier in the armed forces would never go to the battle lines without armament and weapons of war at their disposal. There's actually a sense here in the underlying Greek, when you see Paul write, put your armor on, it's not just Paul saying, put on the clothing of your military outfit. But he's actually saying in one sense, make sure your armor is battle ready. I want you to imagine a soldier in World War I. Let's even say this soldier has access to the greatest technology of war we have in our own day. So the, the best gun, the best kind of armaments and defense, flak jackets, best kind of helmet, all this gear put into the trenches of World War I and yet he doesn't have a gas mask what's going to happen in the trenches without a gas mask for the soldier with all the modern equipment in World War I the first time the mustard gas comes he's going to die his battle will have ended there. And there is a sense in which, don't just read this as, okay, yeah, i got to put this on. i got to put this on. i got to put this on. Paul's also saying, make sure you have all of these pieces of equipment and make sure they are battle ready. A cardboard shield is not going to do you any good. A dull blade, a butter knife, is not going to do a Roman soldier any good. And yet sometimes we have areas in these armaments where we're fighting with terrible weapons and terrible means of defense because we haven't done the hard work of preparing ourselves for the ongoing battle that is all around us. There's actually a sense in which in the original language when we fall into sin, the Apostle Paul could say, well, of course that happened. Look what you were fighting with. This is why it's very important for us as Christians to be honest with ourselves about our idols. To know the areas where we are weak. Lots of Christians will love to drone on and on about all the areas they see themselves as strong. And I I have to say, the longer I walk this Christian walk, the less oppressed I am by such moments. It often can sound obnoxious, not only to me, but it can sound obnoxious to the world. Within the church and outside. But the wise soldier, the soldier with wisdom is actually more concerned not about being a braggart, About where they think their armor is strong. No, the wise soldier is shoring up the chinks in the armor they know they have. Satan will find us where we are weak and he's willing to attack it. So we need to put on battle-worthy armor and make sure that each piece of that armor is worthy to be used in battle. Again, those plastic swords and shields of cardboard, they will not stop evil at the end of the day. Now, a few things here. First, when we get into the specifics of armor, first remember, There's this cool underlying reality here. Where is Paul again? And this is probably the last time I mention this. As he writes this, he's in prison, guarded by who? Roman soldiers with all the armor that he's going to be talking about. And there's one sense, Paul's writing this. Underneath the nose of the Roman guard. And he's smirking and saying, You think your sword keeps me captive? You think your breastplate and your shield keeps me captive? I, the Christian, have better armor than you. So don't forget that. We carry better as Christians. And so now let's begin talking about the armor we carry. We begin with the belt of truth. What is the belt of truth? Well, it's truth. What's the opposite of truth? lies. In 2 Corinthians eleven three through 4, Paul has this warning about lies. He writes, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, he's talking to the bride, the church of Christ, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion of Christ to Christ, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it. You put up with it readily enough. Paul's warning is that the bride of the... Just as the bride of the first Adam, Eve, was deceived and got off track, we, the bride of Christ, the church... We also, too, will so easily allow ourselves to be deceived. I can't tell you how many people think, just because I'm in this denomination or I'm in this church where my parents uh, were in, I'm going to be okay. And yet, that's not the Apostle Paul's warning. Paul's saying, a war is going on, a battle's being fought over truth, and even at times, the church itself will be deceived. And unfortunately, the bride of Christ will be tricked. To embrace false gospels. To embrace new spirits, new ideas that can't be accounted for in scripture. Because it will look for the good of our own philosophy, the good of our own eyes at first, rather than seeing what it is rotten at the core. If you sit here today, for example, and think there are many ways to heaven, for instance, outside of Jesus, so you don't really need to evangelize those around you or maybe marriage isn't between one man and one woman or again as we talked about in a previous survey where do you get the idea of marriage if you don't borrow from the church, the Bible or gender is fluid or the gospel means you try as hard as you can and Jesus makes up the difference or sex outside of marriage is fine or a litany of other things that I could mention and I don't mention in a pompous way Can I ask you the following? Why do you believe in those things? Why do you believe in those things? Is it something you believe because of the fullness of the revelation of God's word? If not, you haven't put your armor on. You're going to be led astray. The bride is frequently led astray. We need to be careful with that. No, the reality is, is because we all have our little weak points, those little chinks in our armor, where in our own estimation it just seems right, even if God says it's wrong. So we need to shore them up, so we're not susceptible to attacks. Can we really be a people standing up at the height of the battle if we aren't wearing the belt of truth at the very core of our body? Let me also, though, put another way the belt of truth gets distorted. If you have received the power of the Holy Spirit, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. That is true, and it will always be true. Sometimes we can struggle with sins in our life, and evil comes along. And, and yes, we sometimes want the things that we should not want, as Paul talks about in Romans 7. And, and we have that little voice that tells us, oh, because you did this, oh, because you did that. You're, you're not no longer a child of God. And let me tell you, spirit-born believer, as we talked about last week, is filled with the dynamis of God, the dynamite of God, the explosive power of God. Don't believe such lies. Put your belt of truth on. In the grand story of God, it is clear, even in our filth, even in our spiritual malaise, our weak points, our pride, we are His spirit-indwelt children. And so even though we will lose battles because regularly we surrender truth for lies, things we believe, more because we want them to be true rather than God's word establishes them as true, we are his spirit and dwell children, and so never forget that. That is true. Wear it around. Next we have the breastplate of righteousness, and this is an interesting one because... Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here, chapter 59 of Isaiah, I think verse 17. And he is, in Isaiah, the breastplate of righteousness is clearly referring to the messianic individual who is Jesus. 800 years before Jesus came, that he will be our righteousness in our place. He will be the one who does, is the hero of the battle. And yet, also in the Greek here, in Ephesians, however, Paul kind of has a different, a, a secondary sense to what he's saying. Yes, the gospel is true. We are saved by the, the work of Christ alone. We place faith in our hero. However, there's also a sense where Paul here is telling us we also need to be careful to have a personal righteousness uh... to be seek out righteousness in ourselves that's a way to put it to seek out righteousness in ourselves and let me illustrate this with a political point point. one that i'm pleased to say whether you're registered democrat or republican independent polls are showing we all pretty much universally agree on this issue it was really a bad idea to leave weapons of war from the finest military force in the world out in the open to be taken by the Taliban. Good news. Regardless, uh, here we find ourselves in 2021, and we can't agree on anything, but we all can agree on that. So good news, American citizens. We have something to rally around. We think it was an awful idea. Why do we think it's an awful idea? Because the enemy, a wicked enemy, is going to use those weapons of war in order to do a great amount of evil. How does this deal with the breastplate of righteousness? What are the things in our life that the enemy grabs a hold of and he causes great wickedness in our life? Because we're not willing to destroy those weapons. Our conundrum as Christians is not so different than the folly we all kind of universally see in Afghanistan. What are the things that cause us not to... Walk in righteousness, and why do we still allow them to have a place in our battle? Now, here I am. I, I say this as a f- tubby pastor. You know what? As a tubby pastor, I've started a diet, and I've, uh, good news, I've so far lost 15 pounds, but I got like 100 more I could lose. And all it is is basically I drink a gallon of water before I eat anything most days. I take Sundays off, so if you're ever wondering. I take Sundays off. And it forces me because I've allowed to go on far too long in my body this struggle with food. And so feel free to encourage me. Let me know. That's fine. That's, but... Um, I've allowed it and I don't want the enemy to continue to have a foothold. I just had a doctor's appointment that gave me a clean bill of health, but I said to myself, "Why do I keep doing this? Why not just try to make changes that help my health?" We need to have that reality in righteousness. Why do we allow weapons to be turned against us? It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. And so there's a sense that this is also being said here by Paul. Yes, we are saved by the breastplate of righteousness that is the perfect work of Jesus Christ, and yet also too we're called to walk in righteousness. And so why do we surrender righteousness? The things that make war against us. Next, we have the shoes of the gospel of peace. And what earth, the shoes? Well, shoes are what we stand upon. It protects us from cuts and wounds. They allow us to run or walk with greater confidence. And what is this? In part, it's the fact that the gospel means our sins are forgiven. It sets us at ease. It sets us at peace. Even though we have that little voice at times in the head that states, Did he really do that for you? Did he, did he now? We can say, Yes. Yes, he did. He died for me. I'm at peace. Jesus died for me. Knowledge of that protects me no matter where I stand. But also, remember, Paul has already reminded us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus was this most beautiful evangelist who came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Our feet help us travel with the good news The great commission that God has given to us. The final commandment that Jesus offers his New Testament church. He says, take this good story. Take this news and travel. Share it with others. Travel the world. Our shoes are a reminder that the gospel is the only thing in this world that is kept and preserved by us giving it away. By sharing it with others. Next is the shield of faith. Faith has to be in something. We board a plane. We're putting faith in the plane, the crown crew, the pilot. I think of our political leaders, those who we've given authority to in, in our nation and, and how they frequently contra- contradict themselves, either side of the aisle. Give me any leader in public office or a spokesman in politics. In the last two years, you can find contradictions. And we have a crisis of credibility in the, our hands politically in the public square. But we are never to be a people feeling the same way about God. God and His Word are true. It's trustworthy. It's timeless. It's been able to speak across all nations, all lands, all eras of time, all generations. It has been prophetically affirmed and is unified. And at the center of it all is our glorious Savior, our Lord. Someone who few fuma- is the best of humanity who is worthy of having faith in. We need to grow in that understanding of how great our God is in whom we are called to have faith in in order to be prepared for the ongoing war we find ourselves in. As Proverbs 30, verse 5 promises, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And so, as Paul points out here in Ephesians, Satan's fiery arrows will not pierce the armor of someone who holds on tightly to their faith. Next is the helmet of salvation. And this one is a really fascinating one for us to consider, the helmet of salvation. There's this whole train of thought within Christian communities, many Christian communities, that think we as Christians can't confidently embrace the reality of our salvation, that we are presently saved in this lifetime. It was actually the last thing I remember holding out on when I... uh, left the roman catholic church for a biblical based christianity i just i struggle with that idea i'm allowed to to say i'm saved in confidence in the salvation of jesus christ and yet here paul is saying cover your head in the idea of salvation cover your head presently in the reality of salvation the head which is the center of your thought. The head which is most often the first thing we see in one another. Regardless of what you face. whatever, Regardless of what blows might come down upon you. What others might try to claim about you. You wear the Lord's salvation on you. Each and every believer who walked in here this morning already should be wearing on them. the the satisfying present reality that God's ultimate salvation of them is true. We presently have this. God is not a God who says, do all this and maybe I'll save you. That's what false religion teaches. God's the kind of God who says, here, take it, take my salvation. And you have it cover every thought you ever had so that you can go to war in this present age against the spiritual battles forces of evil knowing always you are covered in the present reality that you have been saved by me lastly and it seems lastly we have the sword of the spirit which as hebrews 4:12 tells us is the word of god this is why again as we mentioned Jesus in the wilderness Um, Jesus was able to stymie Satan because he knew the word. He had the sword of the word and was able to defend himself against the satanic enemy he faced. Well then, how well do you know the word of God? How sharp is your sword? How capable are you of defending yourself on what you believe? And what do you believe by that word? If you're not very good at such things, how are you working to strengthen that weapon? This is the only offensive weapon that's described by Paul and we are to carry it out into the world. No one wants a dull blade in battle. And yet somehow as Christians, we have, this, we have moments where we let our ability to defend the truths of God's word grow dull. Or worse, we never even allow the weapon. God grants us to be made sharp and then we actually have one final weapon mentioned but it's less obvious than the rest we have prayer talked about in verse 18 of which next week's sermon we'll talk more about but prayer is a weapon for all occasions but even more than that did you notice the remarkable reality Paul reveals in this brief prayer Paul's in prison as we have said So it would logically follow that Paul would ask and pray for his being released from prison. I mean, what an awful present circumstances. None of us would ever blame Paul if Paul had prayed in this moment to be released from prison. He's in chains for the gospel. Yet he prays for continued boldness to proclaim the gospel. Because the only thing that ultimately matters in the end For the battle-tested warrior is not where God has ordained us to fight the present battles. We all fight in the fields of harvest God has brought us to. No, the important thing we fight for is the knowledge of the saving gospel to increase and grow in the places in which we serve. Paul is closing this letter saying, I'm not worried about my own suffering because I'm wearing the armor of God. I'm worried about the advancement of the conquering gospel. My present prison self can't diminish the peace, the love, the faith I have in God. And our passage ends with the final two verses that in many ways help sum up all of Ephesians. The entire letter. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This letter has been one that has told us we are to be a community, an ecclesia of love, faith, and peace. Both with one another and with God. That the ideal Christian church understands, yes, there is a war going on, raging on, for the battle for souls and yet the works God has prepared for us before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 2 told us, so that we might walk in them, there is a sense in which Apostle Paul has made clear little small moments like that by small congregations like Ephesus was at this time or even ours can do powerful things for the battle. The Word of God is saying, trust us. Our Lord is saying, trust me, stand up, stand up for my truth, stand up for my wisdom, stand up together, not as an individual, but united in a community. Because each one of us has a part to play in God's glorious redemption story. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, You saved us even before we ever had courage to stand. We would have never stood for ourselves had You not first stood for us. And so we thank You for the salvation of Jesus Christ. And yet we don't adorn ourselves and arm ourselves often enough with that which can help slay the evil that it is in in our lives. And we sorrow for that. Help us to better ready our weapons. Help us to better live in community. Help us to better trust in the one in whom covers us from head to toe with the knowledge and understanding of his salvation and his peace. You are a good and gracious God to us and we are sorry we are so forgetful. We thank you that you have renewed our spirit yet again and help us here then be prepared to go forth into the world ready for the battles that.